It also corresponds to other findings from related fields uh, of scientific research that have shown, for example, that things like distractibility, for example, increase the, the, brain, the brain's aging or even our biological aging mechanisms. So there's something called telomeres, for example, which are the caps on the end of chromosomes. And those basically get shorter and shorter as we age, and you can measure them as a, a biological marker of the aging process. Welcome back to Against the Herd, where we explore unconventional approaches that lead to unconventional results. And if you're just now joining us and you haven't listened to our previous episode on meditation, I encourage you to listen to some of the research that we pulled out. But today's guest is Dr. Cortland Dahl, and Cortland has spent much of his time in research in parts of East Asia. He is now one of the leading researchers and neuroscientists at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. He is the co-founder of Tengar International. He is the founder and CEO of Healthy Minds. He has published 12 books and numerous uh, articles and scientific journals on meditation. This was a phenomenal podcast. We learned so much and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Against the Herd podcast. Today, we have an extremely special guest with us, uh, Dr. Cortland Dahl. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Mr. Cortland. I um, just wanted to give a, a brief background on, you know, we've covered a lot on meditation recently on the podcast. I um, just wanted to give a, a brief introduction of kind of where we've been and then, you know, give you a roadmap of, of where we're going. Um, Bruce and I did our own uh, podcast on meditation, kind of went through some of the, the neural mechanisms, default mode network, um, some very basic tips of how one might include meditation in their life. We then had on my uncle, Bo Bostead, who went through his daily practice and you know what drew him to a meditation practice over the course of his life. And lastly, we had on a best-selling author of a book focused more on mindfulness, who you know, gave some really great tips. She does corporate seminars and such, um, Nina per Perjual. Um, she does corporate seminars on mindfulness. So we, we've had a couple of different aspects of it, but um, we are extremely excited to have you, you know, join us today and fill in with your perspective. Um, to start things off, I was wondering if you could just tell us, you know, a bit about yourself, how you got into meditation. Where does the story start? Yeah, I'd be happy to, and uh, great to to be here with you and to share a little bit of my own experience with meditation. So for me, this has you know been a very very personal journey. Although it's been a big part of my career and uh, in recent years the scientific research that I've been involved with. So if I go way back to the beginning, uh, I first started meditating when I was probably about 19 years old. I was a college student. And I'd always been wound a little bit tight, a little anxious as a teenager. And when I got to college, that just went through the roof. I got really anxious, really overwhelmed, really stressed out, and in particular, a lot of social anxiety. So it's, it's ironic that now in my life, I do so much public speaking because I had a phobia, and I'm not exaggerating, like an intense phobia of public speaking back in those years. And so much so that I actually fainted on one stage on stage one time, like that's how anxious I used to get. So that's really what prompted me to get, you know, to seek out meditation, to want to learn more about it. I didn't know anybody who meditated. It was totally a fringe thing at the time. I mean, it was back in the early nineties, but that got me started. I started meditating every day and pretty soon it really had completely changed my life. So I've been meditating ever since. Very good. That that makes a lot of sense. So kind of came to it to unwind yourself a bit. Um, and and what got you in, um, again, to, to your career? Like what led you to, you know, meditation um, with your career? Again, and it may tie with Buddhism as well. I know that that, that may tie into your, to your story as well. And feel free to expand upon, you know, that aspect of it as well. Yeah, you know, I have a very eclectic circuitous route with my career. If somebody were just to look at it from the outside, there's no real discernible path that, that probably makes sense as a model anybody else could follow. So I started at that time, you know, when I started meditating, uh, as I said, I was in college and I was very interested in psychology. So I worked in a lab at the time as an undergrad and we were studying things like intelligence and complex skill acquisition. So it really wasn't anything having to do with meditation. It wasn't even a thing yet in the 
mainstream scientific world. But I was interested in psychology, so I was kind of doing both at the same time. Um, you know, I then ended up spending many years in Asia. I, at a certain point, got a master's degree in Buddhist studies. I then lived for almost a decade in Tibetan refugee settlements, mainly in Kathmandu, Nepal, but also in India. Uh, and it was at that time that I, I started a nonprofit organization. This is back in 2004. That was my first, you know, real attempt to bring a sense of, uh, to bring my meditation practice into my career. And basically what happened at that time is I had, I had spent time learning Tibetan. I became fluent in, in Tibetan at a certain point. And I was beginning to translate these ancient meditation manuals from Tibetan into English, but there was really no way to support myself financially while I was doing it. So I wanted to keep going, but I also needed to make a living and support myself. And I kind of had this feeling of like, okay, world, here I am. I'm ready to help. I'm ready to, to do my part. But nobody was stepping forward and saying, okay, you know, you're hired. So I thought I'll just, I'll just start an organization myself. So I did that, that, uh, you know, over the years transformed into what is now Tergar International. Uh, so I co-founded Tergar with a Tibetan Lama named Mingyur Rinpoche, and that's now a global network of meditation centers. And then even that, even beyond that, a few years after that, I reconnected with my scientific interest. I met a, a really well-known uh, neuroscientist named Dr. Richard Davidson. He then invited me to come here to Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I, I live now, and uh, ended up doing a PhD with him. And basically since that time, which was 2016 when I finished my PhD, I've divided my time between Tergar, which is this meditation community, and Center for Healthy Minds at UW-Madison, where we do research on meditation and the neuroscience of uh, training the mind. Fantastic. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah. So I'm just really interested, and it's a, it's a thing, it's a topic that Nick and I often talk about when we're speaking offline, and it's why, why is our school system, because this is so powerful, it seems from the outside looking in that we're missing the boat in teaching this very early on. And I'm curious on your, your opinion of that, if I'm correct in that observation, but with the amount of time that you spent you know, in, in Nepal, just parts of Asia, is that, is that a pretty significant part of their development as a child and as a you know, teenager and adult? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I guess a few thoughts on that. I mean, if you go back 40, 50, 60 years ago, you'll see that even something that is as well established uh, as it is now like exercise or healthy diet was not nearly as well understood and was not nearly as mainstream, you know, if you go back a number of decades. And it was a, a combination of scientific research that started to come out and popular interest starting to grow to the point where now it's just commonplace. If you don't exercise, you at least understand the benefits of exercise and the importance of exercise. And you probably feel guilty that you don't exercise if you don't, but everybody understand it. And it's just, you know, a mainstream part of our culture. It's built into education as you're kind of referring to. Um, I, our sense as scientists, and here I'm speaking more from the point of view of the work we do at the Center for Healthy Minds, uh, is that meditation is is at a similar place to where exercise was, you know, probably 30 or 40 years ago. The science is really pretty rock solid now, but it's growing by the day. There's starting to be more and more interest in a variety of sectors of our society, from schools to hospitals, to organizations, to businesses, to prisons. I mean, you name it. We've, we've worked with all organizations in virtually every sector of our society. And even in some countries, not as much here in the US, but in the UK, for example, even public policy, like the government has adopted some pretty large scale mindfulness efforts in the UK in the educational system. So I think it's going to happen. I mean, the, the, the evidence is just so strong. It's so cost effective. It's not expensive to do. And it's just, you know, it's akin in our, you know, in our view to training the body where you're essentially training the mind to be more resilient and to be more focused, to be calmer and more caring in the same way that 
training the body through exercise and eating healthy essentially trains the body to be more resilient and boosts our immune system. So we're just, I, I'd, I'd say somewhere along that trajectory. And I think it's, it's beginning to happen and it'll happen more and more, you know, and as we all know, there's a lot of cultural forces that, that make it extra complicated, just the culture wars here in the United States and a variety of things that, that probably slow that down and make it more complicated. But to me, it seems inevitable. It's just, the evidence is so strong. It's, it's just a no brainer. Like why would, as a school system, why would you not do that? So what you're saying, like many people tell me is Bruce, you need to be patient. <laughs> um, and that brings up a, it brings up a, a question that was brought to you on, on a webinar. And I think it would be really interesting to, for you to break down is, you know, when you use the example of, of working out, right. Um, and again, the example is of working out we didn't have the data, we didn't have the knowledge that we did before. And at least at, at this point now, even if you're not doing it, you at least know the benefits of it. But you also made the correlation of meditation being a, a workout. And as we know with working out, right, I can work my chest, I can work, I'm working my triceps, I'm working my biceps, I'm working my legs, et cetera. And from what I got out of that webinar, right, it, it seems like different meditations work different parts of the brain. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, we use this term meditation and it sounds like it's one simple thing. And it's, uh, you know, it's easy to get that impression because if you look from the outside, somebody's just sitting there, you know, apparently doing nothing. But of course it's, it's what's going on in the inside that gets interesting. And meditation is, is really, you know, akin to exercise in the sense that there are many, many forms of, of meditation, literally hundreds, if not thousands of different forms of meditation. And in the same way that different forms of exercise work different parts of the body and they affect the physical body in different ways, they're designed to do different things. Different forms of meditation are really just the same, but for the mind, they do different things for the mind. They're designed to have different effects on the mind. And even from a neuroscientific perspective, the evidence is very, very clear and rock solid on this point that they activate different brain networks. So if you're doing a basic awareness practice, like a mindfulness meditation on the breath, you know, you're likely activating the prefrontal cortex, you know, which is the part of your brain that helps, you know, self-regulation, you know, to be more focused, more in the driver's seat of your own experience. And it might activate other networks, you know, like, you know, for example, part of the brain that's responsible for monitoring what's going on in the body, because of course you're paying attention to a physical process when you pay attention to your breath. But if you look at another form of practice, say one that is designed to cultivate compassion or appreciation, it might still uh, harness the power of that executive network that I mentioned, but it likely brings on entirely different regions in the brain. So there's still a lot of scientific work to do. The field is still in its infancy, but it's pretty clear that it is analogous to physical exercise and different meditations are doing really different things to the, the body, the mind, and the brain. Yep. That's, that's fascinating. W would you mind expanding a bit on uh, the different types of meditation? Because I think that's something that's easily lost. Many people view it as simply the breath work and, and awareness items. Uh, again, you actually published a paper in 2015, the cognitive mechanisms of meditation. Um, so if anybody wants to check that out, we will link that in the show notes. But I was just hoping you could give us a quick, you know, not a specific number, but um, of what you're seeing the most popular forms of meditation are currently, what are those most common forms? And what areas of the brain do they interact the most with? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, this is definitely an area that I've been very interested in. We've, we you know, been trying to publish, uh, theoretical frameworks to help the scientific community better understand the breadth of meditation practices that, that paper that you mentioned being one of them. So in that paper, you know, which is, um, you know, our first, uh, attempt to classify all the many forms of meditation, we group them in basically into three categories, into three families of meditation. The first is what we refer to as the attentional family. So these are mindfulness practices, awareness practices, basically practices that involve in some, in some way, shape or form, uh, 
really attending to attentional focus, either widening or narrowing the aperture of awareness, getting the mind to be more focused, more stable, and so on. And that's really the main point of those that form of practice or that family of practice. The second family of practice we refer to as the constructive family. And this is completely different. This is not just paying attention to something like the breath or stabilizing your attention on some other uh, object of experience, but rather cultivating, nurturing, developing, usually some positive quality. So I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, the example of compassion meditation or appreciation meditation. There's a whole body of practices that are all about forming and maintaining healthy relationships. So these would fall into that category. There's other practices. In fact, Bruce, you mentioned uh, patient, like needing to be more patient. Well, there's practices for that, right? There are practices where literally you're training your mind and rewiring your brain so you can be more patient and more grounded, for example. So that whole body of constructive practices is all about having some quality or state of mind that you want to cultivate, and then you systematically strengthen that over time. So the, you have the attentional practices, these constructive practices, and then the third category is all about what in traditional context would have been referred to as wisdom or insight. And it's basically exploratory practices. And the key mechanism in these practices is what we call self-inquiry. But basically you're exploring your mind and inner experience, and you're gaining insight into the workings of your own mind. So basically it's, it's giving you insights into the human condition, how the mind works and functions, and we call these deconstructive practices because they're oftentimes deconstructing experience so we can better understand it. So for example, you might take an emotional experience. Like I mentioned that I, when I first started meditating, had really, really overwhelming anxiety. And so I got a, a crash course in these kinds of practices at the time. But a lot of my practice in those days was just exploring that meditatively and seeing this monolithic experience that I would label as anxiety was actually a very complex constellation of experiences. There were feelings in my body. There was a loop of thoughts that would play through my mind. There was beliefs that are kind of the undergirding of the whole experience. And as I teased that apart, it actually loosened up the pattern to the point where it just eventually disappeared altogether. So again, these are kind of deconstructive practices. So there are countless practices in each of those families, but that's just one simple way to understand the, the diversity of meditation practices. Phenomenal. That is, I think that is extremely insightful um, stuff. And for our listeners, that paper you wrote on the different cognitive mechanisms of meditation has been cited by I think over 700 people by now, which is a, a massive amount. So clearly, um, other people, many other uh, scientists in particular have appreciated uh, that work you've done and has, has helped them enormously with with their work, uh, which is fantastic. I, I wanted to dive in. I was a neurochemistry major in college. And wanted to dive into the, you know, some of the neural mechanisms. I first wanted to just go over my very basic understanding based on, on the research that, that we had read. Um, and then maybe go into some of the mechanisms or at least where we're at with the research on, you know, perhaps the three, the three different um, categories you just outlined. But our understanding is that again, based on some of the papers we read, right, people who meditate a lot, they have a, the default mode network of the brain, which is a, a few different areas. They showed greater gray matter in those areas, so greater, you know, larger areas in the prefrontal cortex, but they showed less activity in those areas. So they showed less activity and less activity in those areas is linked to increased happiness and you know, sense of calm and sense of self. Is that roughly correct? Feel free to correct me if that's completely wrong. Yeah, you know, it, it's... Uh... It's a little more complicated and I'll, I'll just share a, a few thoughts on this. The first thing to say about the neuroscience in this area, this is a, an emerging field that it's coming to be known as contemplative science, or in this case, contemplative neuroscience. Essentially, you can think of it as the, the neuroscience of training the mind. What happens in the mind and the brain when you train the mind, as we're talking about now. Um, so what makes it complicated is the kind of the point we talked about earlier with physical exercise and how different forms of practice affect the brain differently. You're, you're essentially activating different processes in the mind. 
those mental processes map onto neural processes and neural activity. So if you take something like the default mode network as an example, so for those of you who don't know, for your listeners, the default mode act, the default mode network is this network that corresponds to thought. So basically if you just sit around and you're not doing anything and somebody popped you in an fMRI, a big brain scanner, and they looked at what was going on in your brain, it wouldn't be that the brain just goes inactive in some dormant state. Actually, the brain is highly active even when you're sitting doing nothing. So scientists were first puzzled by this because it's it's not a random pattern of activity, nor is it a, kind of a state of inactivity in the brain. It's actually a very predictable set of brain regions that becomes active. So the scientists who've studied this, when they looked into what, what is actually going on when this now, what is known as the default mode network becomes active, what they found is that when we're sitting around for, the, for most of us, we're actually thinking, our minds just start churning out thoughts. We ruminate, we think about what happened in our day or in the distant past, or projecting ourselves into the future and imagining some future scenario that hasn't happened yet. But basically we're thinking. And we're not just thinking about anything, we're thinking about ourselves. We're all, as it turns out, pretty self-obsessed. So this is the network of self-referential thought, which uh, unfortunately, because it creates problems for mental health, is active a lot of the time, especially when we're not otherwise engaged in some demanding task. So the question that you're raising here, and scientists have looked at this, we've done research on this at the Center for Healthy Minds, is what's going on in the brain of meditators and how does it affect this default mode network. So where it gets complicated uh, is that different forms of meditation affect what's going on in the mind in pretty radically different ways. And therefore they're gonna affect this default mode network also in different ways. Uh, so for example, there are some forms of meditation like the, the now very well known and commonly practiced mindfulness of breathing, like one of the first practices many people learn, where you just learn to bring your awareness back to the breath, you get distracted, you bring it back, and that's basically all you do over and over again, is learn to stay with the breath. So that, if you do that consistently, it has the effect of dampening the activity in this default mode network. So if you look at new meditators, that what you'll likely see is that that activity uh, slowly becomes uh, less, or basically that network becomes less and less active. So for example, one of my colleagues, Judd Brewer, who's done some really interesting work, basically showed that even new meditators could deactivate certain nodes in this default mode network in, pretty, in a pretty brief period of time. So that, that's brain activity, which is different than brain structure, the actual physical, as you were saying, the gray matter or white matter of the brain so that you're not gonna see structural changes right away. But if you imagine that somebody continued that practice and they did that consistently over long periods of time, what you would likely see is a decrease in the kind of the, the, the gray matter or white matter structures within the brain. Essentially, because the brain is less and less active and other regions are probably more and more active, the, the structure of the brain is gonna shift in that direction. On the other hand, there are other forms of practice, even within the attentional family that I mentioned a few moments ago, where you actually do something very different. For example, there are practices called open monitoring practices, where you don't try to shift your focus away from the thinking mind, but you actually can bring awareness to the thinking mind. You just take thought activity as the object of your meditation in the same way that you could take the breath as a support for your meditation. So for people who become very adept in a practice like that, you're actually not going to see this dampening of activity in that network. In fact, it might even increase the, therefore the structural changes are likely to look different. And basically that's what the research shows um, is that depending on the kind of meditation that people are adept at, you actually see different, both functional, which is the activity and structural changes in the brain. So there's a great, paper by a scientist named Kieran Fox, who has done, you know, large scale analyses, what are called meta analyses that kind of show these sort of somewhat complex patterns. And again, it really maps on to, to what forms of practice the meditators are focused on and, and best at. So it's, it's complicated. You know, if it was just one form of practice and it was very simple, it would be pretty, 
pretty straightforward, but it's kind of like saying, how does exercise affect the body? It just to go back to our analogy, if you looked at a, a bodybuilder versus a marathon runner, you would see completely different things, right? In the physical body. It's basically like that for meditation. Understood. Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as we know that that activity is correlated with the, the changes in structure, do where are we at in the research in terms of understanding the mechanisms by which those areas like get bigger or smaller? Do, do we, do we know that yet? Or is that still an unknown? We just know that it's correlated when you have more activity that it gets larger in these specific areas. Well, there's this, this cliche in, in neuroscience that you hear all the time that neurons that fire together, wire together. So basically that just means that, you know, as you kind of pair different experiences, uh, there are corresponding patterns of activity in the brain that represent different regions kind of activating together, co-activating. So one of the things that scientists look at is, is patterns of connectivity between these different networks and different brain and different regions in the brain. So as these different brain regions start to activate more and more regularly, you know, say that corresponds with a practice like meditating on your breath, you're essentially over and over activating sets of brain regions in a particular constellation, like a, a particular pattern of brain regions activating at the same time. And over time, those connections are just going to grow. Again, it's, it's not too dissimilar. It's like a much more complex version of just doing a physical movement. And there's going to be certain muscles that are kind of activating at the same time. And they'll kind of grow together if you, if you, you know, continue that same movement and, and kind of regular intervals. So the biochemistry, you know, underlying that is quite complex, as you might imagine. I'm sure you've heard about neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Basically, the idea that the, the brain is constantly changing in response to experience. So there's biological mechanisms that allow this to happen uh, and facilitate that happening. Um, but the, the brain is overwhelmingly complex. And so the, the exact mechanisms through which, it's, which it occurs are, are you know, still very uh, hard to get a handle on. <clears throat> beyond interesting and um i, I want to stay i want to stay on this same train of thought because when you look at you, you talked about in a previous webinar that really stuck out for me is you know a youthful brain right and the activation and the, the act of meditation is creating a more youthful, uh, youthful brain. And there's a couple things also that were mentioned, right? Like you mentioned toxic information. So I'm throwing a lot at you right now, but there's just so much. And I only have you, but for so much time, um, right? I know, well, I don't, the neuroscience, I'd say, that we have a fingerprint on and you more so than probably many, many others, but the awareness piece, right? I understand that when I listen to in the morning on my morning walks, I listen to a classical music or I listen to a motivational speech. Like I feel better. I feel youthful. Like I can feel that. But then I also know if I listen to certain metal songs or certain hip hop songs, like I feel, I feel angry. I, I feel that toxic information that we talk about. And when you talk about, and I don't know if this correlates, but when you take that to how meditation, mindfulness, how that creates a youthful brain, can you just touch on that? Because I think it's so important. I think it misses the boat, especially in pop culture. I think it misses the boat in our youth. And as I'm getting older, the same reason why I'm working out is while my skin may lose its uh, elasticity, uh, I want to be able to function. I want to be able to pick my kids up. I want to have grandkids and be able to kick the soccer ball with them. Can you just touch on that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Lot, lots of great things to pick up on there. Um, you know, the first thing to, to share a little bit about is this, the, I think what you're referring to is a, a case study that we did uh, this is with a meditation teacher, the, actually the same meditation teacher who I mentioned earlier that I've worked closely with, uh, who's named Mingyur Rinpoche, Yonggi Mingyur Rinpoche. And we did a case study because he's been in the center for, you know, years, many, many times. We, Richie Davidson, the neuroscientist I mentioned earlier, has, has done, an, he's basically done uh, a number of studies 
on him and scanned his brain many times. And about five, six years ago, a little bit more than that, actually, right now, maybe six, seven years ago, he did a, a basically a five-year retreat. He just walked out of his monastery in the middle of the night by himself and spent five years wandering in the Himalayas and throughout India, just, just meditating basically full time. And when he came back, Richie asked if he could uh, come into the lab and if we could scan his brain again, just to see what we found. And the paper that was published based on, um, based on the scans, um, create, you know, really uh, got some attention because it showed some pretty dramatic findings related to what scientists refer to as brain age. So basically, if you look at, if you look at the, the normal age-related uh, deterioration in the brain over time, it's quite predictable. And scientists have basically an algorithm where they can kind of measure where somebody is at uh, correlating their or uh, measuring their brain age or just the age-related decline in the brain relative to their chronological age. So is your brain aging faster or slower than a typical person at your age, basically. And what they found with Mingyur Rinpoche was that he was off the charts. He was ba basically at the very far end of the distribution, as we would say in science, um, statistically speaking, in terms of his brain age. His brain was far, far younger than his chronological age. Uh, so that was quite interesting. This is, I should say that this was just a single case study. This was not uh, a randomized controlled trial it would be extremely difficult to do something like this with a rigorous RCT, but it was enough just to maybe say, oh, okay, maybe there's really something here. And it, it also corresponds to other findings from related fields uh, of scientific research that have shown, for example, that things like distractibility, for example, increase the, the, brain, the brain's aging or even our biological aging mechanisms. So there's something called telomeres, for example, which are the caps on the end of chromosomes. And those basically get shorter and shorter as we age. And you can measure them as a, a biological marker of the aging process. So things like uh, toxic levels of distraction tend to speed up the aging process or the shortening of those telomeres, while things like meditation seem to slow that down. So there's findings like that, for example, that all play into uh, you know, what you're, uh, what you're mentioning. So in short, I think that what's going on here is quite complex. And the science in this area, again, is very, very new. I would say we have a lot more questions than we have answers at this point from a purely uh, empirical point of view and a biological point of view. But if I step back and I had to, to guess what is going on here, and again, I'll say that I'll just reinforce the, the point that this is not we yet don't yet have solid data here. I think a lot of what's going on when we learn to meditate is we're just better understanding what's going on in our mind and how doing different things affect our mental state and how our mental state in turn affects our overall quality of life, our sense of mental health, emotional well-being, you know, inner balance, and just resilience, how quickly we recover when something challenging happens. You know, do we get stuck, you know, with frustration or depression or anxiety or anger, or can we have a stressful day and bounce back? And a few hours later, we're, we're all right and we're ready to go. So, um, again, you, you mentioned a number of different things, but related to this, uh, is, is that when we meditate, we start to see that information is to our mind, what food is to the body we are essentially feeding our minds information all the time. And a hundred years ago, that diet was probably much smaller, but now we are flooded with information. You know, we have our, our phones in our pockets, every spare second we're reading something or listening to something. We rarely just turn off and are, are just existing. We're just constantly taking in and consuming information. So if you imagine, you know, with your physical diet, if you really paid attention to what you eat and how it makes you feel, you'd start to notice all sorts of different things. You'd notice that certain foods would make you sleepy. Other foods would make you energetic. Some foods you might not notice right away, but six hours later, you'd notice some kind of delayed effect. You'd just start noticing and be much more sensitive to how the food you're taking in is affecting your physical health and your, the state of your body. 
So it's basically like that with the mind. You, you start noticing, as you said, listening to certain things, maybe some music, you know, you start to see, wow, that just puts me in an aggressive, unhealthy frame of mind. And I, I just don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to maybe eliminate that. It's just like you would do something with your diet and you notice the things that put you in a positive state of mind. So basically that's the the general principle. And it's, it's really helpful actually. Like for me, for example, I've noticed my, uh, with my phone, I noticed that if I leave that in my bedroom, it was the last thing in my hand before I went to bed. And it's the first thing that I pick up when I wake up in the morning. And I just noticed that my mind was just not in a good state when I'm just doom scrolling or checking messages or whatever before I go to bed or first thing in the morning. So I made a choice that I don't even bring my phone into my room. I leave it downstairs. I don't touch it. And it just I just notice my mental state is much better than going to bed and waking up in the morning. So again, it just makes you more sensitive and, and conscious of these choices that we make all the time. Fantastic. And you mentioned phone. Um, so I'm going to ask the you know, you're also involved with the Healthy Minds app, um, and that's an extremely popular meditation app. You've also done research on the effectiveness of, of meditation apps uh, back in 2020. Um, where are we at with that? Are, 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 you, are we finding that those apps are very helpful? Um, what, you know, how can people use these apps to, to start to build a meditation practice into their life? Yeah, you know, we've been um, really pleasantly surprised about the findings on our research using technology uh, to help people learn these skills and these practices. We originally built the Healthy Minds program app uh, really for research purposes. We, we wanted to study all of these different practices. There was no standardized way and standardized tools to do that other than things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, which gets at mindfulness, but not other practices. So we built the, the app and um, we're quite surprised that it started getting a lot of traction. At, at some point, the New York Times recommended it as one of their three top meditation apps, which we were totally shocked by. But from there, it, it really started uh, getting uh, a lot of traction. And so it's reached a lot more people than we ever anticipated it would. But we've been doing really, really rigorous scientific research on this and other teams at some of the leading uh, research institutions have been doing it as well. There are teams at MIT, at NYU, Arizona, Virginia, a whole bunch of universities um, are doing research on the Healthy Minds program. And the, the findings so far are, are quite remarkable. For example, we did a, we did a study, a very rigorous uh, randomized controlled trial with 600, or I think almost 700, school employees, mostly teachers during the pandemic. And we found that just four and a half minutes a day of using the Healthy Minds program app. So just doing short guided practices, listening to short podcast style lessons and the kind of stuff we're talking about now uh, made a dramatic difference in their mental health over the course of, of one month. So just a few minutes of practice a day, they were decreasing uh, depression, anxiety, levels of stress by up to 30% and increasing positive things like feelings of social connectedness, things like mindfulness and attentiveness, just the basic building blocks of mental health and emotional balance. They were able to uh, really significantly improve all of these things uh, in just minutes a day. And we've now, we've now done uh, similar uh, randomized controlled trials with other populations. We're actually just in the, in the course of doing an even bigger RCT with school employees in Louisville. And we're also doing another one specifically with people struggling with mental health issues. And there we're doing some really pioneering stuff like looking at the microbiome and epigenetic factors to see how these practices can even influence the, the flora of your gut, you know, as hard as, strange as that may seem. And there's, there's preliminary evidence that that is indeed uh, the case, that you can actually train your mind and it's going to change your biology, even literally how your uh, gut is functioning and digesting food, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. And it, this is touching back on the, the, the age of your brain, but you know, for, for instance, working out, taking it back to that analogy or that example is we have a, we have a scale that we can hop on, 
right? We have body fat calipers that we can we can look and measure. What what can we do? What, what can our listeners do to sort of get that baseline? Yeah, that's a great question, and this is another area that we are working a lot uh, on because right now um, there are very few good measures of uh, the core constituents of well-being, of mental health, emotional balance, things like that. So one of the things we've been doing is uh, digitizing the gold standard scientific measures we use in the lab. We have one of them. One we developed is, is in the Healthy Minds app now. It's a, a self-report measure, which is not the most rigorous way, but these are scientifically validated tools. So like in the Healthy Minds app, for example, which is completely free and you can get it in any of the, the app stores, you basically answer a series of questions and this has been scientifically validated with thousands of people. And you basically just get a snapshot of your well-being along four, what we call the four pillars of well-being. And then you can do practices and do the Healthy Minds program and see how that changes over time. We've also developed a number of other measures that we haven't put in the app yet. We actually got a large grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation to do this. And we digitize these measurements and we're now um, in the process of creating a platform where ordinary people can actually use them to, to measure their mental health and well-being. Um, but it's it, the lack of good measurements is really uh, a big issue. And we see it as one of the main impediments to this really having a, a much wider societal benefit. So we're working very hard to do that. And just to give you a, an example of the kind of the gaps that exist not necessarily from a scientific point of view, but how it filters down into just people's ordinary lives. If you go to the doctor and your physical health, you know, is not doing so great, the doctor will almost certainly talk about, ask you about your diet, whether you're exercising. In more recent years, you know, they'll probably start asking about drinking enough water. Are you sleeping well and things like that. These are all well known, you know, scientifically, and they're very commonplace in the medical establishment to be checking on these things, to measure them and to help people basically get support so they can improve these things. But what people don't often know is that the mental factors have as big an effect on physical health as a lot of these other things. So for example, feeling lonely or feeling socially disconnected is equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in the, in the uh, risk it is to physical health. So this is just recently the, the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, has been talking a lot about this. Um, but you never hear about that if you go to a doctor. They're not going to say, hey, how are your relationships? And if your relationships are struggling, if you're feeling lonely or whatever, they're not going to give you anything to help with that. It's a bigger risk factor than obesity. It's a bigger factor, a bigger risk factor for physical health than not exercising or not drinking enough water. It's only smoking is on, a, on that same level. So, um, and we know, I mean, our scientific work shows pretty definitively that you can improve your sense of social, feeling connected socially, feeling cared for and having the ability to care for others by doing these simple practices like we have in the Healthy Minds app or we teach in the Tergar uh, community. So there's simple things you can do that make a real difference, but we need to be able to measure that we need to get these tools into people's hands because it's just not nearly as well understood in the in healthcare, for example, or in the wider kind of mainstream pop culture as the obvious things like diet and exercise are. That's changing, but but there's still a lot of work to do. Fascinating. And that that is a phenomenal read on on where we are and and where we hope to go. So so no, thank you for that. Um, I have one last topic. I know we're nearly up on time, um, but. You mentioned you had referenced him a couple of times before, Minger Rinpoche, uh, you know, one of the other uh, main leaders of the Tergar community who has a phenomenal way of, of explaining things in, the, yeah. in his own way. Um, can you touch on Buddhism? Obviously, that's played a, a large part in your journey as well. Um, do you view that as, you know, is it there's a lot of these Buddhist principles that we're applying through the you know, scope of mindfulness? Are they like different gears that you think about, you know, in your head? How does that work? Yeah, you know, um, that's a great question. 
So Mingyur Rinpoche, uh, who you mentioned, is a, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Um, I mentioned him earlier. You know, he's the Lama who, who did those years of retreat. And he's also been a scientific collaborator. So he was some of the, the earliest studies uh, on meditation, which happened now more than 20 years ago. Uh, he was one of a small group of, of what they refer to as Olympian meditators, you know, uh, monks largely who have spent 30, 40, even 50,000 hours uh, in meditation over the course of their lifetime. So this is just an extraordinary amount of uh, training the mind. And it's, you know, perhaps no accident that, that most, uh, most of the scientists who studied Mingyur Rinpoche and his brain have since become students of his wanting to learn how to meditate, both because the results were so dramatic. Like at, at certain points, they actually thought the machinery was broken because they were seeing such profound, dramatic patterns of brain activity that had never been demonstrated before. Um, but also just you know, when you're around teachers like this, you know, meditation masters who, who've so thoroughly trained their mind, it's just inspiring and you, it's kind of infectious to a certain degree. So he certainly is one such individual, you know, for my money, I think he's, you know, the, the, yeah, maybe I don't want to say the best teacher, but just a really gifted teacher of the practice as well. Like how do you actually meditate? Um, so, yeah. So I think when it comes to Buddhism, um, you know, it's something that at first, I, just to speak to my personal experience, I was not at all interested in the religious aspects of this when I first started practicing. In fact, I had a an active allergy to anything that resembled organized religion, was, you know, wanted to keep it at arm's length. Um, but I think, you know, after a number of years, just got drawn more and more to the Buddhist tradition. And there were And there were a few things that, you know, I think were probably critical in that process or, or made it work for me. I don't think it's for everybody. You know, you certainly don't have to be Buddhist to meditate. If you've got another faith tradition or you're agnostic, agnostic or atheist or whatever, that's totally fine. There's no need, I think, to even check it out. But for me, I think what made it a good fit for me is, um, I think first is that having a healthy skepticism is not only allowed, but actually it's part of the path. Asking hard questions, inquiring, examining, you know, is, is really part of the Buddhist approach. There's this famous quote that I'm going to paraphrase here goes something like you shouldn't believe, you know, what you, what you read in a book, just because it's written by some famous person, you shouldn't believe something just because it's what your parents believed or what your culture, the views your culture has, you should rigorously test and examine anything you hear and put it to the test of your own experience. And if you really see that it rings true in your own experience, then you can adopt it. And that to me really fit with my own kind of scientific skepticism. Um, so I think it was that. The other piece that I've I found really helpful is that Buddhism isn't a theistic tradition. It's not based on beliefs or a creed of, or kind of adopting a new belief system. It's ultimately practical. It's, it's really almost more akin to psychology uh, than a religion in that it's, it's really a very practical exploration of the human mind. That's all centered around the question of why do we suffer? Why do we, you know, get caught in loops that create and perpetuate states of suffering or dissatisfaction? And how can we find our way out of that? So ultimately it's just very practical human questions. Um, and for me, you know, I've, I've found that path uh, a very rich and rewarding one. It certainly has inspired a lot of the scientific work. There's many practices in the Buddhist tradition that I think are great, um, you know, candidates for scientific inquiry. So it's given me lots of ideas about what we can study and what we can learn from a more rigorous scientific perspective. So that's just a little bit about my, my own personal journey, but it has, it has been indeed a very important part of my, my own life. Of course, and, and we very much uh, appreciate your sharing. Well, I want to be mindful of, of your calendar. I know that we are up on time. Um, but if you wanted to, we will link in our show notes, uh, you know, the, the app and, and the website. But how would, how would if a listener wanted to get involved with Tergar um, and, and learn more about this or delve into your world, what would be the best way for, for someone to do that? Yeah, you know, I would say, um, as I mentioned earlier, whether we're talking about Buddhism or Tergar or the Healthy Minds program or any of these, you know, we're all different. 
different things work for different people. I'm a big believer that there's no one size fits all approach. I think the, the, the meditation that is the best is the one that works best for you. And the practice that works best is the one you will actually do. So I think if it's an early stage, I think just, you know, looking around, checking things out and seeing what resonates, uh, is the best approach, you know, with Tergar and with Mingi Rinpoche, there's, you know, countless videos and things online, the actual step-by-step -step course of training that, that he developed is called the joy of living. So he ha actually has a book called the joy of living, which is one of the best, uh, books to get started in meditation. So that's a, a great read if you're a reader. And then there is an online course that you can do. There's events around the world as well that are basically work through, um, the core steps of learning to meditate. So that's, that's one simple way. If you just want to check it out, you know, you can go on YouTube. He's got countless of videos, countless of videos on YouTube and elsewhere that are just, will give you a kind of a sense for Mingyur Rinpoche as a teacher and the style of meditation practice in the Tergar community and the Healthy Minds app, you know, which we've mentioned a few times. Again, you can just go onto any app store and put in Healthy Minds program. And again, completely free, no paywall, no freemium or anything like that. It's, we've made this uh, completely free to anybody who wants to use it. So those are two options, but of course, there's many, many others. There's many great ways to learn to meditate. So you could check things out and, and see what resonates. But what I would say is, um, I think the, you know, even if you just do two or three minutes a day or five minutes a day, what I noticed when I first started meditate, meditating is I, I meditated off and on. I would, I would read a book and get all excited and then I'd meditate for a few weeks. And then I'd kind of lose my motivation and I'd stop for a month or two. And then I'd again, read something and again, get excited. And it was beneficial, um, in that up and down period. But there was a point at which I started meditating, uh, for 20 minutes every day. And that is when things really started to change in my mind. I think it was within a matter of months, probably like five or six months that it just felt like my mind was just radically different. I was so much more focused. I had always been restless and a little agitated and suddenly I just felt calm and confident and relaxed. It was just like I had tapped into some wellspring of kind of mental energy that I didn't even know I had. So I think even if it's a few minutes a day, just doing it regularly and consistently for a number of months. And then I, I've just talked to countless people who've had a similar experience. You'll, you'll notice a difference, you know, if you stick with it for a while. Absolutely. And, and I don't think we could have given any possible better advice. Um, you know, as I said, we, we are eternally grateful for you sharing your story. The theme of this podcast is against the herd and not being afraid to make your own path. Uh, you certainly did that um, and have, you know, really amazing things to share from, from your journey. So I just wanted to really thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much. guys.